When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Doug Marie, Scott Pasco, Ellis Williams, you know the drill. We dive into two big issues around the Cleveland Browns. That's the four and one Cleveland Browns. This Tuesday, Scott Patsko on Olivier Vernon and Ellis Williams with a big picture look at Kevin Stefanski. We are going to start with Scott Patsko, go, you know, 25, 30 minutes or so. I am very curious about this. I just sped through all the Olivier Vernon snaps from Sunday's win over the Indianapolis Colts. So Scott Patsko, go ahead and dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, so we do these regular Q&As with our Football Insider subscribers. And one of the comments that we get regularly is that the Browns need more pass rush outside of Miles Garrett. And this is usually targeted at Olivier Vernon. Um, so as the Browns are preparing to face the Steelers team that lets their quarterback, uh, well, Ben Roethlisberger has been under pressure on only 24% of his dropbacks, which is 31st in the league. So clearly this is a game where the Browns are going to need some pressure on the quarterback. So I thought this would be a good time to take a look at Olivier Vernon and, and really the Browns pass rush outside of Miles Garrett, who's having a great season. So Garrett is tied for the league lead in pressures with Aaron Donald. They each have 33. He's second behind Donald. He's got six sacks. Um, but here's what Olivier Vernon has contributed. And again, this is three games. He's had an abdominal injury that he's dealt with. But I think at this point, we should probably understand that injuries are something that come with the Olivier Vernon package. Um, anyways, he has seven pressures and zero sacks through three games. PFF has a metric called pass rush productivity, which kind of takes all forms of pressures into account. And uh, they kind of weight it a little more towards sacks, but they also factor in how much you're actually rushing the passer. So, Garrett's at 10.1. He's ninth among all qualifying defenders. Vernon is ranked 155th. He's 3.7 in 94 pass rush snaps. So as we've noted in earlier podcasts, Garrett is doing more of his work from the left side this year than, than we've seen in the past. And that's largely because of Vernon, who has been mostly on the right. He has 78 snaps on the right. And again, that's just seven pressures in those 78 snaps. So 16 snaps from the left going against right guards or right tackles for Olivier Vernon, zero pressures. Uh, his PFF grade is fourth worst on the team, 48.9. So that's what you're getting from Olivier Vernon this season, who, although he restructured his contract, is still making a boatload of money in his uh, final contract year with the Browns. So I thought I'd stop there and uh, kind of get reactions to what people think about Vernon so far this year. You thought you, you would stop there and allow any <laughs> Olivier Vernon stand that is left in the world to like take a breath and be like, well, but, uh, but so is he, st- he's the fourth highest paid guy on the team. 
this year, even with the restructure? Yeah, I think it's like 11 million is his cap hit. Yeah, Jarvis Landry one, Odell Beckham two, Sheldon Richardson three, Olivier Vernon four, and then Miles Garrett five. So Scott, when, I, when you, you say this a lot sometimes when you reference the PFF grades, what is the, the number that is sort of like an average or a replacement level player typically? Is as far as overall, like offensive, defensive grades, uh, anything below 60, like the 60 to high 60s is, is basically your backup. You get into the 70s, you're considered a starter. It's, it's really equivalent to what you'd think of high school grades, roughly. Oh, okay. So 48.9 is failing then. That's a big old F. Is that, is, am I allowed to say that? That, oh, that makes so much more sense. It's like high school grades. Yeah. So Ellis Williams, I, we want you to chime in on this, but I will tell you, I broke down some tape. Uh-oh. And by breaking down tape, I mean I, I watched the plays and I only looked at Olivia Vernon for the Colts game. And this is what I saw. So they'd say like, you know, they say, uh, red 13, uh, Omaha, Omaha, hike. And then the ball gets snapped to the quarterback. And then Olivier Vernon, what he would typically do is there would be a player on the other team standing right in front of him, like a Colts offensive lineman. And he would run forward into that lineman and that would be it. It was <laughs> every play I told Scott, I was watching the first quarter and then I thought I was watching the second quarter and I accidentally had hit the wrong button on the Game Pass rewatch. And I was actually rewatching the first quarter again. But I was like, oh my God, every single Olivier Vernon snap is the same thing. And then I was like, oh, sorry, I rewatched the same drive three times. But then I went and watched the other drives and it was still the same thing. Ellis, I know, I know I'm not actually a film guy. Am I, is Scott laid out a case? I'm just screaming. Am I being too mean to Olivier Vernon? You're not. You're, you're really not. Um, one thing when it comes to w when I, I watch these games first, obviously live and then on the rewatch, it's a real simple, it's a real simple rule. Is someone popping? Are they popping off, off the tape? Are, do they live in my notebook during the game or do I notice them with an eye after the game? And both times for Olivier Vernon, it's, it's more often than not, I don't have much to say about him. And that's, and that's exactly why we're having this conversation because there hasn't been a lot to say before I before the, the this segment goes where I feel it's going, we all know it's going. I will say this about Olivier Vernon. You can't teach his size. That is still one thing that he he brings in that strength and ability to at times set the line of scrimmage to be where he's supposed to be. And again, the Browns fans aren't gonna want that out of the guy who's making them for the most most amount of money on this team. But there is something about being assignment sound in your gaps, not getting pushed back, uh, um, remaining um, even at the line of scrimmage, if you will, if you're not pushing your opponent back, and then just staying in lanes. He still is, is disciplined. He still is sound. That athleticism that got him um, to the Pro Bowl and then this contract is fading. That's what the tape's showing. But there is still natural advantage to having him out there. It's just not meeting his paycheck as of right now. It does. It seems like every play is a draw. So I guess if that's the point, like he's not getting pancaked. He's not getting blown off the line. And then, hey, look, they just ran through the hole where Olivier Vernon got, got demolished. Right. It's, it's, and it was like, because sometimes, Scott, he was, he was on both sides a little bit, right, on, on Sunday that he went there. It yeah. almost seemed almost by, by quarter. There were, maybe it was because I was watching the same quarter three times again. But there were, <laughs> 
almost drive to drive. Sometimes I was like, oh, there it is. He's going against uh, the right tackle, getting blocked, getting blocked, getting blocked, getting blocked. And then like the next drive, be, oh, okay, now he's getting left tackle, getting blocked, getting up, blocked, getting blocked. But it was almost just two guys going into each other and then like both of them sort of standing up where they are. So I don't know, maybe a draw is good. Maybe it's like they played chess all day and it was like, oh, who won draw? Who won draw? Which I guess is better than losing every time. I don't know. So now, now you're making me be nice, Ellis. Way to go. But, and yeah, he did, uh, Garrett and Vernon did have uh, more back and forth on each side than they've had in, in previous games. It's, uh, it, he wasn't just tied to, to the right tackle this time. But I guess the real question here and what people should probably remember is that how much you're paying this person to do what you're getting out of him, you know? the Browns were pursuing other edge rushers this off season because it seemed like they wanted an upgrade as far as getting pressure on the quarterback and actually getting, getting sacks out of the quarterback, the things that miles Garrett does on the other side at a higher rate. So, I mean, Vernon had the second best defensive grade on the team last year on, on defense. Now, again, this is a defense that just had all sorts of issues and, and injuries and he didn't even play a full season, but this year it's just really dropped off it's kind of really sticking out when you look at those grades week to week. And so I know you wanted, you did want to compare last year and this year. You think he, I mean, he was significantly more productive a year ago that this is even, because I at times last year was sort of like, where is this guy? And then people would say, Hey, you know, dumb guy who only cares about sacks. Look, he's actually being productive, but that that's not the case this year. He was more productive last year and just is not now. He was, but I think it's also important to remember what, like the expectations of Vernon and what Vernon actually is were really lining up. And we've had the similar conversation about, you know, Odell Beckham and, and Austin Hooper and uh, Baker Mayfield to an extent this year. Um, when Olivier Vernon was signed by the Browns, what they were getting is a guy who he was coming off a pro bowl season, but he'd had double digit sacks in just three of his previous eight seasons. He had 10 twice and 11 once. He's not someone who has been among the league leaders in sacks from year to year. Um, both those seasons, he had 10 sacks, though. He also had 80 pressures. And that's really what I think, if you're bringing Olivier Vernon onto your team, that's what you're hoping he recaptures. Um, and that was in 2015 and 16 when he did that, though, those 80 pressures. He has not had more than 48 in any other season. So the first year he had 80 pressures, by the way, is what led to him getting the richest defensive end contract in NFL history at the time. And there's something to, to think about. The Browns actually have defensive ends who can both claim that at some point in their career. But he was also – so he, he, was, he was one of the league leaders in pressures those two years, and he made his Pro Bowl. But like I said, he hasn't held that up in, pri in pri prior years. Think back to last year, Nick Bosa. He had 10 sacks and 80 pressures, and he was defensive rookie of the year. Olivier Vernon's best season is that, but on that pass rush productivity – uh, stat that I threw out earlier, there's a huge difference between what Nick Bosa did per pass rush and what Vernon was did. He had like over 500 pass rush snaps that year. He had 80, 80 uh, pressure. So it's about quality over quantity, I guess, is really what you're looking at with Vernon when he's coming off the edge. So if people wanted Vernon to come in and suddenly become one of the sack leaders in the NFL or even in the AFC, I don't think that was a realistic thing to expect, even though you're playing opposite Miles Garrett with the Browns. And so, and the one thing, and you mentioned, like, they traded a good player to get him, too, which, which was stuck in my craw a little bit, too, that that exacerbated, like, hey, they traded Kevin Zeitler to get Olivier Vernon. They had no right guard last year. So at least that is not as much of a problem. I know that's not the player's fault, but that's fine. They get paid a lot of money. We can criticize them. 
Like, the, at least right guard is not a glaring hole anymore that's like, oh, my God, why did they do this? They could have had Zeitler. They got right guard patched up this year. Wyatt Teller, who's now hurt, but Chris Hubbard played pretty well uh, on Sunday. So that's, that at least is removed from my analysis of Olivier Vernon. But, Ellis, do you see that just what Scott was saying of, I did feel like last year there were some people who were critical of Olivier Vernon, and sometimes people pushed back and said, hey, no, don't be so critical. He is doing some things, but he's taken a step back this year. Yeah, without a question. And again, it goes back to what I said about, and I like what you, how you laid it out, Doug, about, about the stalemate. Now, if that is your baseline, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, he's not getting pushed back, then that is answering our question. Olivier Vernon made the Pro Bowl, was once the highest paid defensive end for what probably was a, ended up being a few weeks there for not a couple months, due to his athleticism, due to his ability to win with one-on-one moves, push guys back and fill running lanes. And we just haven't seen that. We have not seen the burst. We have not seen the go. And I'm sure this is something that is, you know, has to be discussed when we're talking about Olivier Vernon, but it's, it's an injury history here. It's, it's an inability to stay up on that explosiveness, explosiveness, because look, though the Browns have been uh, treating their injuries, especially this year over a, a cloak of mystery, it's no secret when a player misses this much time, it's not just the, the rehab that's important. You also have to take into account what they're missing on the practice field. So as you're building your body back up to get into football playing shape, you're missing those, that, that practice time to maintain your explosiveness, to work on your pass rushing moves, to be that player that you once were, because now your top priority is simply just being out on the field. So we're watching Olivier Vernon really transfer to the, the second half of his career, which I'm not sure how long that lasts I know it won't last long at this dollar amount but what I'm trying to say is due to the injuries he's battled he's lost that explosive ability because he's not out practicing it's it's that simple you only can get by so long on your natural talent once you're practicing hard just to get on the field rather than practicing to get better on the field you're going to see a regression so Scott it would be lovely to think about oh man what if what if Clowney would have ended up here opposite Miles Garrett. Man, that would have been awesome. Or the guy from Jacksonville whose name I Kevin never can remember if they had made that trade for him. Yannick, name I, whose name I can't pronounce correctly, Ngakwe. so I'm not going to try. <laughs> Yannick Ngakwe. Yannick Ngakwe, if they had got him. But is, is Vernon still is Vernon still like the, the best end that Garrett has been paired with here? What's – I don't know. I mean, like, you, you think about, oh, my God, if it was Clowney, but I don't know. I mean, I guess it could be worse. It has been worse, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and one more quick point about um, what, what Vernon actually brings. He has been an above-average player against the run, and that is something the Browns also had to address, address when, you know, going into that 2019 season. Um, and he did help with that. But you don't think of Olivier Vernon as a, as a run stopper. You think of him as an edge rusher and, and someone who has to get to the quarterback. So, but um, you brought up previously, in 2018, when Garrett – had 13 sacks. I guess it kind of depends on who you're looking at. People count sacks a little differently, but roughly 13 sacks that season. He had Emmanuel Ogba on the other side. He also had Jannard Avery. Uh, Ogba started 14 games. He played 69% of the snaps for the Browns that year. He had three sacks and 30 pressures total. And this was mostly coming from the left. Uh, Jannard Avery also did most, most of his work from the left. He had 269 snaps from the left. He had five sacks. 28 pressures. He did even better on a, a pass rush 
productivity rate uh, from the left, though. He had 12 pressures. He didn't have a sack. 12 pressures and 70 snaps from the left. I, who It just remains a mystery how he played so well as a rookie and has just basically fallen off the map the last two years. I think he has 10 pressures over the last two years between the Eagles and the Browns. Um, but you had somebody there who showed some promise from the left, uh, more so than Agba. But that's basically what Garrett had his first, his you know, first real full season with the Browns that 2018 year when he played every game. It was Agba and Avery. And I think you can make the argument that, you know, Vernon clearly is a, is a step up from those two guys. Although uh, I got, <laughs> I got something to share here in a little bit that would maybe suggest otherwise this season, but that's basically what he had, what he had and what led the Browns to, to go after Vernon in the first place. So, We'll just wait then, I guess. We'll wait for Miles Garrett to maybe someday be paired with an actual guy who is a threat on the other side, which would just be a whole new world, right? Well, this is what, what's happening, though. The fact that the Browns don't have anybody who can consistently get pressure on the quarterback from the left has made Miles Garrett a pass rusher who is consistently working from the left. Now, if you remember uh, Olivier Vernon, when he showed up in, in Cleveland Prior to last season, the storyline was about how he never really played on the left side. He'd always been a guy who rushed from the right, just like Miles Garrett. And he even made a note of that. He said, you know, Miles can do that, but for me, it's going to be a challenge. And this season, it seems like that has been scrapped. Uh, even last year, they both ended up with more rushes from the right. And this year, like I said before, uh, Vernon's directional breakdown, it's 78 from the right, 16 from the left. Uh, that week one game where they were both on the field against the Ravens, uh, Olivia Vernon wasn't on the left at all. Miles Garrett spent the whole game over there. So you have Miles Garrett, who is clearly better at getting to the quarterback from the right side, going against left tackles. He's now over on the left, and even though he's having a great season and can pretty much rush against anybody, that's basically what you created. Miles Garrett going over to the left, even though he's clearly better on the right because nobody else is able to to get pressure. The other options there, Porter Gustin, his his pass rush productivity from the left is one point nine. Adrian Claiborne is zero. Joe Jackson is 1.6. So these are guys who haven't, they haven't taken a lot of snaps on the left and they just haven't gotten to the quarterback that much, not even pressures. Um, so Miles Garrett is clearly your best option no matter where you're lining him up. You know, when he brought in Vernon, the hope was that he would become that guy on the left, but it just hasn't happened. So I think what we eventually want to get to, and I know it'll be your, your the last point you want to make, Scott, is like, you know, what, what this all means for the Browns going forward. But I want to ask Ellis, this first before we get into this ellis if you are you know the, the, our listeners here on gotta watch the tape who who are hearing all this um you know they're four and one miles garrett is playing awesome is is ellis is there something here all, the case that scott is laying out is there something that at some point this is gonna have a negative effect on miles garrett are our teams gonna start triple teaming miles Garrett every snap because there's not anybody on the other side that they're worried about. Like what is the, how does this work schematically that if you just don't have a threat on the other edge, it eventually could lessen the impact of the, the all pro defender you do have in miles Garrett. Yeah. You know what? I'm not, I'm not all that worried about this for a few things. First, Olivier Vernon though, though we're, we're, doing this deep dive on him, he's not by any means a scrub. He's still going to go out there and, and be a serviceable um, at times above average, you know, just because a player doesn't grade out above average doesn't mean they don't have above average moments within that game. 
And I think that's something important to keep in mind where teams are still need to respect the Olivier Vernon of his, what his size is, the, the times he can uh, make a play, and just his overall – look, a, a lot of this league is reputation. You know, of course, these coaches are watching tape and making game plans week to week, but a lot of it is reputation. You are who you were until you're really out of this league. So Olivier Vernon, though, he's not – like, I, I use the Dallas Cowboy game, for example – the the Browns this year are being really smart about where they're deploying Miles Garrett. So when the when the Browns find out Tyron Smith, you know the the Cowboys All Pro left tackle is playing, well we're we're simply going to avoid him, and we're really going to avoid him on in, on the important down. So we're okay with putting Olivier Vernon over there, and it can be a stalemate, or you know Vernon can can lose a battle here or there because we're going to move Miles Garrett over to the right tackle side or line him up over a guard, and that's how we're gonna we're gonna win this matchup you know talking as Joe Woods here and that is where what is different about this Browns defense right now and why I think this is sustainable for Miles Garrett because yes he's going to get double teamed there's an occasional triple team here but when you keep mixing up where you're putting Miles Garrett it really makes it unpredictable and then Garrett being the the best player on the field that that trend that we're seeing right now through these past four games he's really unstoppable you can't stop him 100% of the time and in those one or two moments when he strikes, it's really not mattering who who's on the other side. And we all, I also want to say something quickly about Adrian Claiborne. Uh, him coming back healthy is important. You know, if you can get half Olivier Vernon, half Adrian Claiborne, I think you have a, a player opposite of Miles Garrett that is uh, above average, if not threatening. And then Miles Garrett can continue to wreak havoc. It is interesting. I mean, it's it's you know, in the NBA. If, if you have a great scorer, you can put your best defender on him. Or sometimes, you know, if you have a great receiver and you want to have your best cornerback follow that receiver all over the field, I'm waiting. Are we going to see the point now where uh, uh, NFL offensive lines, they set their tackles, they see where Miles Garrett goes, and they're like, okay, make the left tackle go over to right tackle. Because Miles Garrett is in control of his matchup. Yes. So that's a good, it's, like, it's like, all right, well, We'll let Olivier Vernon stalemate the good tackle, and then we'll let Miles Garrett destroy the bad tackle. That's yeah, that's not the worst plan in the world, I guess. You know, I mean, again, if you had two two ends who both were destroying tackles, that'd be a little better. But Scott, so Scott, what is what do you see as potentially the overall effect for the Browns' pass rush as we as we see this, especially heading into this game? This is a great week to talk about this because, as you said off the top. If, if they don't get after Ben Roethlisberger a little bit, it's going to be a rough day for the Browns defense. Right. So here's where I'm kind of switching this whole conversation. There's been a lot of research done that would suggest that, well, let me start by this, by saying this fans want more pass rush out of the Browns, but I think they should maybe consider more coverage. There's been a lot of research done that would suggest that coverage is more valuable than pressure. If you have players who are in coverage, they're going to be in coverage more, often and for longer periods, then your defensive line is rushing the passer. The problem here is that coverage from year to year really fluctuates. Like the best coverage defenders, it really kind of goes up and down, whereas you're going to have more consistency from guys who run the pass, rush the passer. So defensive ends get the big money and the secondary doesn't necessarily, unless you're working for the New England Patriots who have actually thrown a lot of money into their secondary more so than, than their edge rushers. And some of the things that kind of back that up is the fact that even though Miles Garrett's having a great year, the Browns are ranked 20th uh, in against pass protection from football outsiders. And that's through four weeks. 
I don't see that going up a lot once they update things. They're 11th in pass rush from PFF. The Browns are fifth in pressures this season with 46, which is basically the same rate they were on last year. Um, and we all remember, you know, Miles Garrett's strip sacks and the big hit on, uh, on the Colts that they got the safety. But quarterbacks are still con- under pressure. Quarterbacks are still completing a really good percentage of passes against the Browns. Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott, Phillip Rippers all completed at least 60% of their passes under pressure against the Browns. Haskins was at 50%. And only two of the Browns' six interceptions have come when the quarterback has been under pressure. So while everybody wants the Browns to upgrade the pass rush opposite Miles Garrett, and obviously are targeting Olivier Vernon, what Ellis, Ellis kind of alluded to earlier, perhaps that's the kind of production they can get by with as long as they upgrade in the secondary, which could be more valuable. Which is what John Dorsey would have told you when he picked Denzel Ward instead of Bradley Chubb, that when everyone thought they were going to take Bradley Chubb. I mean, if they, they could have taken a defensive end with the number four pick in the draft in 2018, and, and that you wouldn't have this question. Lily Vernon wouldn't be here. You'd be using Miles Garrett and Bradley Chubb, and then we'd be saying, man, who are their corners? You know, like you wouldn't have Denzel Ward. So that idea, I mean, it's, it's you think they'll – be able to do mostly of what they need to do against the Steelers that, that, I mean, they need Denzel Ward and they need Terrence Mitchell to show up on that day. Miles is going to be miles, but the game's not going to come down to whether Olivier Vernon can get a, a, a pass rush on his side against Ben Roethlisberger. Well, yeah, I'm saying the, the job that guys are doing in the secondary is more important than the guys are the job the guys are doing up front, because again, you're only going to get so much pressure on Ben Roethlisberger which means you need to have a secondary that can cover uh, receivers and tight ends that are, that are running around. So that's where the whole coverage has more value than, than pass rush comes from. And, you know, against the Steelers, we don't know it's going to work against Steelers yet, but it's clear that they're not letting anybody get much pressure on Ben Roethlisberger and they're, you know, they're undefeated. So I want to, I want to ask you a cap question, Scott, before, and then I want to get Ellis to get sort of his final thoughts on this. I get hung up on this and I, and I'm fine with getting hung up on it. But again, part of the idea, and as, as we sort of mentioned before, it's like, well, part of the deal with Olivier Vernon is that he's making so much money and, he, and he's, we're trying to see like if he's doing stalemates or not. Is this normal? Like if we go through, I, I don't sit and go through the cap situation and the eight highest paid players on every team in the league. Um, is it normal that teams have guys who are, hey, he's one of our five highest paid players, but he's sure not one of our five best players. Like, is that just how it works sometimes? You get a veteran guy, he used to be good. You, you, you spend some money on him. It turns out he's maybe a little injured. He starts to go on the downside. Everybody's like, hey, what's up with this guy? And it's like, ah, it just happens sometimes. Or is this kind of a big deal that they're paying $11 million a year for a guy who frankly doesn't look all that much better than Port Augustine to me from snap to snap? I, would, I mean, it's common. That's why you have cap casualties every year during training camp. And uh, yeah, I mean, every team is going to end up with players who – sign for a a deal that they didn't live up to. And, you know, like I said before, the Browns have multiple guys who are in situations this season where they're making a lot of money and not really being in roles that, you know, where they produced a lot more or differently than they are this season. Um, Vernon's a little different because I think his, his task is a little clearer, but you know, yeah, I, I mean, it's totally common. I think the Browns have let guys go who made too much money. Everybody does that. It's just the Browns had an opportunity to do that with Vernon and decided to, whether it was through not being able to get someone else or just deciding that they'd rather 
play out this final year and see how it went. This is, you know, the end up with a guy who's making a lot of money and, and not producing the way a lot of people expect them to. Doug, real quickly, um, this actually happened last week. The Browns played a quarterback who was the highest paid player on his team at about $25 million, and uh, Philip Rivers didn't do a whole lot to help them win that game last week. Yep, yep. Uh, Olivier Vernon, the Philip Rivers of defensive ends. So, <laughs> so I, I, the thing that, that interests me in the end on this is, I mean, when you line up and, uh, you know, just re-watching Olivier Vernon snaps against the Colts, I mean, he's just, he's single teamed every time. It's just him and a tackle, him and a tackle, him and a tackle. They're never giving any help. There's no reason to. Um, he did have a play. I think it wound up being an incompletion on third down, but he and Garrett kind of got to Phillip Rivers, like right at the same time. He's and, credited and with a hit. Credit, yeah. And that like Miles was a nanosecond behind him, but, but Vernon did make a play there. I think I would have counted like maybe one other time that he actually sort of did something that mattered on the play. Almost every other snap to me was stalemate, stalemate, stalemate. But Ellis, the idea that you don't have to really worry about giving any help on Olivier Vernon or Porter Gustin, does that matter to Miles that it's like, okay, well, they're always going to help on Miles' side? Or again, does it not... Is, is Miles Garrett going to do his thing? All right, well, maybe a back is helping out. Maybe you left the tight end there. That's fine. Miles Garrett is still going to be Miles Garrett. Is there – how much of an effect, Ellis, would you say there is on Miles Garrett in how a team schemes against him because they aren't quite as worried about the guy on the other side as opposed to if the guy on the other side was Jadavion Clowney? Right, right. So that's exactly what's going on here. It is all eyes on Miles Garrett. But, again, the Browns have an advantage in the way they're – moving him around and credit Miles Garrett with his willingness to play wherever here. You know, when he lines up in the three technique over a guard, there's no guarantee that that's going to be a passing play. And now he needs to become a run, a run sound stopping defender, which Miles Garrett is really good at, but you know, the, these, these pass rushers, they want to get after the quarterback. Right. So Miles Garrett is completely bought into a scheme that overall protects him from being schemed against due to some of the limitations on the other side here. But still, I, I do believe that, a combination of Gustin, Claiborne, and Vernon are going to get the Browns for this year. And that's, I want to end on this note. On Gotta Watch the Tape, I think it's always important to remember that, like GMs, we keep one foot in the present, but we also have to keep one foot in the future. And that's why this Olivier Vernon thing, though worth discussing, and, and Scott made a lot of really good points here, and I really think what he said about coverage is what we'll see from this team going forward as we talk about roster building. But the reason the Olivier Vernon thing overall isn't, in simple terms, how Doug put it, not a big deal, is the compensatory pick that the Browns are likely going to get out of this. He needs to keep, keep playing better because the, that the way they grade that pick is still kind of a, 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 I don't want to say mystery, but it's, it's a base on your, your percentage of the salary cap and then your performance that season. So all things go right. They could get a third round, an extra third round pick for Vernon after he, he isn't brought back. And that all of a sudden could turn into a pass rusher, a young guy who helps miles Garrett, you know, two, three years from now. And then we come full circle and say, all right, this Olivier Vernon thing was worth it. So you get, this isn't sustainable for the rest of, you know, miles tenure here in Cleveland, but if down the road, it brings in a young pass rusher and which is something that they will target in these next few drafts, then, you know, Browns fans can look back and be cool with this. So it's like, so it's like miles Garrett is like LeBron and LeBron's coming down the court and like Olivier Vernon's like Contavious Caldwell Pope, let's say. There you go. We actually had a pretty good finals, See? but it's like, like they're, that. they're coming down and it's like Jimmy Butler is getting ready to guard LeBron. And then as they come down, 
like LeBron, like says, I'm going to go over here. And then Jimmy Butler has to guard Contavious Caldwell Pope. And LeBron's like, I'm going against Tyler Hero. And, and Miami's like, but I don't want Tyler Hero to guard LeBron. And it's like, well, yeah. it's too bad. They're about to snap the ball. You have to guard LeBron with Tyler Hero. So if yeah. you could do that every time, I guess it's not the end of the world that Contavious Caldwell Pope isn't Ray Allen, right? It's like, you're, you're okay because you still got LeBron on Hero. And LeBron can't be guarded by Tyler Hero. Yeah, that's exactly it. And furthermore, KCP did, KCP did what he needed to do. But you don't think LeBron's scheme in this offseason trying to improve that spot it's the same thing the browns will improve this edge rushing spot just give it time and that is one of these things i i like to look at things with the browns that are like listen it's not great but it's not necessarily killing them and man think about when it could get better right that again when you're not paying 11 million dollars a year for a guy who's average boy oh boy there's a chance that again one foot in the present one foot in the future this is a spot that not great at the moment Miles Garrett is still doing his thing for sure, but it's a, a spot where you can, you can improve on this next year and then you get into roster building and you can see why maybe they're not, they're not like maxed out on what they can be. All right. I enjoyed that. Guys like Olivier Vernon are fascinating to me, right? Because it's like big money, big name. What's his production? Is it, you know, where exactly is it? So that informed me on what's happening with him, but also not just what's happening with him, like what it means to the Browns. So I think that was a great deep dive. We'll take a quick break here on Gotta Watch the Tape, and we will be back with Ellis Williams leading the discussion on Kevin Stefanski. All right, back. Doug, Scott, Ellis, and Kevin. We call him Kev? What do we call him? Do we call him Steph? I don't know what – I don't know. If I, you know, everybody – he's that – it, this... it might be smooth operator. I don't know. Is that one sticking <laughs> I was You're almost, really pushing that, you know? You, you really want that to stick. Can you blame me? I was – so Ellis, Ellis is trying to give this smooth operator nickname to Kevin Stefanski, and he put it in his piece after the game, and, and I almost retweeted it with, like, great breakdown, bad nickname. I was getting – that was the retweet that I did not tweet about Ellis's breakdown. So I don't know how much nickname discussion we're going to get into here, Ellis, but I think you have other things you want to say about Kevin Stefanski. So go ahead and dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, we'll table the nickname, though I think Smooth Operator fits him due to, you know, he's not, he's not the, the Cliff Kingsbury pretty boy looking for the flash. I mean, he's just the Smooth Operator, but for another time. All right, so <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about Kevin Stefanski, you guys. Um, I want to unpack why I think really more importantly outside of the nickname, of course, why I think he's going to become the next quote-unquote difference maker NFL coach. Uh, the Browns are 4-1. and one. If you all haven't heard, listeners, if you haven't heard, your Browns are 4-1. and one. Um, What is he accomplishing? How is he accomplishing this? And what does it mean for his perception throughout this league? So, again, through five games, y'all, the Browns are 4-1. and one. I re- keep writing it. Enjoy this. It's the first time since 1994 Bill Belichick was the coach of the Cleveland Browns. That's not the comp I'm trying to make. What I think is important when we're talking about head coaches is to break it down into what makes a winning head coach. Of course, you need the franchise quarterback, and that's a conversation about Baker that might get baked into this. But in a more day-to-day, and when you're looking for a head coach, and that's one thing when I list these things off, I want to throw it back to you guys after I go through this. I listed about five things here that I think make a winning head coach, things you have to be good at each Sunday and really in your, your day-to-day life at the facility of Berea 
to have a winning formula, a game plan that puts you in a position to win, to eliminate the chances of losing, really. So first, in no particular order, this is what it takes to be a good head coach. You need to be good on third downs. Right now, the Browns are converting 45% of their third downs. That's 13th best in the league. Last season, Baltimore led the league with a 48% conversion. San Fran was fifth with 45. So the Browns stay in this mid-upper 40. We're talking about a, probably a top five, definitely a top 10 team on third down. We've already done a deep dive on the Browns' red zone percentage. They're all the way up to fourth best in the league, 73%. Again, if that stays near 70, that was as, for, that was as good as second last year in red zone percentage. So they're good on third down. They're converting in the red zone. Those got to have it down. I've, I've wrote – already at length about those are Kevin Stefanski's money downs and he continues to prove himself. And now here are some smaller things, but still equally important, but there's stuff that you can't just, you know, search for a stat. And we're going to, we'll unpack some of this a little later. Understanding your opponent. I wrote about it after the game. The Colts game is a great example of understanding your opponent. He, Kevin Stefanski went into Dallas and had a completely different game plan than he had taking on the number one ranked Colts defense. He has a complete understanding and respect for his opponent, which allows him to then stay disciplined in his game planning. Also, penalties. Browns fans know enough about this. I saw enough of it last year. Undisciplined teams lose games. The Browns ranked 10th in their last three games in penalties, averaging only four a game. And last week versus the Colts, they only had two penalties for 10 yards. Clock management. Just as important as penalties, understanding your opponent. It's, it's the small things that aren't going to show up in a box score. But when you watch the tape and you start to see trends, you notice that Kevin Stefanski is about his business just as much on the opening drives when he's scripting plays as he is at the end of games. The Browns have gotten field goals the past uh, two halves. Um, you remember in Dallas, they, they drove down the field and had that critical play where Landry faked out, went inside, and then they kick a field goal. Same at the end of the half for the Colts. And then think about how the, the way they've ended games, all four of them, versus the Bengals, Washington, Cowboys, and Colts, they have ran out the clock at times when it's the Bengals in Washington. They've had big plays from Odell Beckham Jr. on an end around to end a game in Dallas. And then when they needed it versus the Colts, you have Dearness Johnson on a power left to end the game on an 18-yard run there. And lastly, leadership. Mary Kay Cabot wrote a great piece about this in our, our series on why the Browns are different this year. I, I suggest all of you go and read that again if you haven't. It, she is someone who has the context to lay out why Kevin Stefanski's leadership is different than anything she's seen. And that goes deeper into player development. It, it explains why players like Wyatt Teller, Chris Hubbard, Dearness Johnson, Miles Garrett, and regardless of where you feel about Baker Mayfield, there's no question that he's playing a heck of a lot better this year than he is last year. That's leadership. That means Kevin Stefanski is a teacher an educator, and again, ultimately a leader. So y'all, I just threw at five or six things at you guys where if I would have told you that a Browns head coach had all those qualities, both you know the third down and the red zone stuff, and then the time management, the penalties, and the leadership, where would you be feeling and how would you be feeling if I told you a Browns coach was going to have all those qualities baked into one? That's your coach, Cleveland fans. That's your coach. How does it make y'all feel? I cannot believe that you set that up and you finish it with, he's a teacher, he's an educator, and that you did not say he's a smooth operator. You oh, had it. Was waiting there. Just... You lined it up. You lined up the rhyme and you... Dr hey, look, 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 look. If I'm having you guys do it for me, clearly it's seeping into your consciousness. So it's working. It's working. This is a little Jedi trick. You know, so come on. So Scott, so these are the things, these are the six things that, that Ellis laid out. Third down, 
red zone, understanding the opponent, avoiding penalties, clock management, and leadership. Scott, of those, what jumped out? Is there one of those six that when you analyze how the offense is working, how the team is functioning, that really jumps out to you so far this season? Um, well, there's one thing that isn't on his list, and that's talent. This is the most talented offense the Browns have had since they come back. And what you did here was you combined – you took a coach who has all those great qualities that Ellis mentioned, and you gave him all this talent and offense. Clearly, Freddie Kitchens wasn't the guy to deal with all that talent last year. But Kevin Stefanski is. So we're seeing this, this you know, marriage of, of two, two things here with, with, his, with his organization and focus and understanding what he's supposed to be on offense and then having all the talent he needs to make that work. You know, it isn't like he's trying, he's getting a group of players to overachieve or something like that. Although maybe you can make the case in, in Wyatt Teller's situation. But for the most part, he's doing, I think, what everybody expected to happen with a team that has this kind of talent. All offseason, we talked about how they have an embarrassment of riches in the backfield and they have, you know, they upgraded tight end so much and they have two of the best receivers in football and, and, and all these things that Baker Mayfield has to work with. And Baker Mayfield now has a coach who understands how to use him the best because we've seen how well the offense worked in Minnesota. You plot Baker Mayfield in there and it's just success waiting to happen. So it's just kind of a combination. But I think the talent that Kevin Stefanski inherited here has a lot to do with, with where this team is at. So I want to I pose this question to you, Ellis, because I think it is – I think Scott makes a good point, and I think it's fascinating. I love alternate universe kind of things in sports. You know, if you want to look at some – you know, you look at a guy like Kyle Shanahan, who I think is an easy comparison uh, for a lot of people to make. When he got hired in San Francisco, you know, they weren't good – right away they were sort of starting to build something they didn't have their quarterback answer right in front of them yet they went out and traded for jimmy g they were the second worst team in the league they draft nick bosa nick nick bosa then in year three for kyle shanahan they make the super bowl sean mcdermott in buffalo a guy that that the sashi brown regime wanted to hire instead of hugh jackson in cleveland you know they actually made the playoffs in sean mcdermott's first year but it was kind of a weird tyrod taylor Again, it's not who you're going to be long-term. He did a really good job, though. They win six games his second year. They get Josh Allen. They start developing Josh Allen. They make the playoffs last year with Josh Allen. You look now, Sean McDermott's in year four in Buffalo. You look what, what, at what Buffalo is. To me, there's a world where the Browns, either A, Hugh Jackson just handles things differently, doesn't freak out about stinking, and just like stays the course – they're aligned then, and we're now in like well into the Hugh Jackson era, and the talent has coalesced, and Hugh is the guy that like you live through a couple bad years and you get to this point. Now, Hugh Jackson would have had to be a different person than who he was to be that, or you hired Sean McDermott or Kevin Stefanski back then, and you progress together, right? You build together because you had to tear it down to build it up. What wound up happening with the Browns is – they tore it down. It was a living nightmare for everybody involved with the franchise and every single Browns fan out there. But it was a nightmare with a purpose. And they went through craziness with the coach to get to this point. So now that they're here and this is working like this, are they behind Ellis or like, is it fine? Would they be better off 
if Kevin Stefanski was in year four? Or is it like, you know what? It was messy. It was ugly. There was a thing last year that the expectations were there. It didn't work out. But they built it up. They gathered the talent. And now they got their guy who seems all these things, six things on Ellis's list. He stepped right in. They're four and one. And they're good to go. That like Kevin Stefanski doesn't have to have a couple down years the way Kyle Shanahan did in San Francisco, because he probably should have been part, a Kevin Stefanski type should have been part of the build, but they screwed it up. But now they got him here kind of at the end or back end of the build, and it's ready to roll. Do you think any better coaching continuity would actually put the Browns in a better spot right now? Or did this kind of work out just fine? I think it's working out better than fine. I think it's working out great. And I'll, I'll say this, it's based off two main things. Scott, I, I completely agree with what you're saying about the roster talent, but the, the easy argument back there is that, you know, this roster isn't all that different from what Freddie Kitchens had. Now, of course the offensive line is, is a huge upgrade and that's important, but that was going to most likely be addressed regardless coming into the season. So when you look at what it really just were we're going to look back at when Freddie Kitchens and Kevin Stefanski both enter an interview room and one gets the job and the other is sent back to Minnesota. It, it, it is mind blowing how that is able to happen. But again, Doug, it goes back to everything working out and the Browns probably getting a little luck for the first time with their timing here, because you, Scott, you wrote, you wrote about it when, why the Browns are different this year. It is really about alignment. It's, it, it kind of frightens me to think if Kevin Stefanski would have been in Cleveland two, three, four years ago and been trying to navigate through that dysfunction, because y'all have seen what happens when you come into the Browns dysfunction, you get spat back out really regardless of the quality of coach you are. I mean, Hugh Jackson is a, is also a teacher at the quarterback position. I don't know if he's a overall com, uh, comprehensive football coach when it, in terms of, both offense, defense, marriage of a vision, and then making that applicable to a team. But he is a, a teacher and, and a respected one at that throughout this league. But when you have so much in-house bull going on, it really makes your vision hard to first be seen and then to be practiced. So I, I think it, it has, you know, it's a dark night quote. The night is darkest just before the dawn, and I promise you the dawn is coming. I think Browns fans were led through a, a long, dark period there with last season being the darkest due to the roster talent that this team possessed and the ultimate failure that it was that now the Haslam's in a way woke up, got out of the way and had again, alignment, that buzzword that is we're seeing now turn into wins and allowed Kevin Stefanski to run this in partnership with Andrew Barry and, and now the question is not about Stefanski. We're, we're, we're nitpicking stuff with the quarterback and do they need an extra pass rusher? You know, it, it is, I mean, it's, it obviously all works together, but you know, I mean, if Kevin Stefanski had Deshaun Kaiser and Cody Kessler and Corey Coleman and Dwayne, who was the guy who was terrible? The Dwayne Bowe. Was it Dwayne Bow? No, who was the next guy after that? Was it the Dwayne Bow? I'm getting my terrible overpaid Browns receivers mixed up. He would look different, right? I mean, it, there's, there's only if, – if he would look different. But as this comes together, it does feel like – I think a bunch of the things that you mentioned, Ellis, when you talk about third down plays, understanding the opponent, 
red zone conversion percentage, clock management. There's a lot of like logistical maximization of the on-field talent that makes a lot of sense here. And, and I want to get both your opinions on this. I'm not going to pretend I, I first guessed it. I mean, I, I was fine with Freddie Kitchens. I said, I wrote at the time, I said, either this is like great timing and the guy down the hall turns out to be the perfect guy. And I thought like from a personality standpoint, kind of what Freddie was felt like maybe what they needed right then. But also he was a guy who had never gotten that chance before. And maybe now we, we know why he never got that chance, but also Kevin Stefanski never really quite had a chance like this before either. So I did like Brian Flores in that moment. He interviewed for, with the Browns back then as a Patriots defensive coordinator. And I think Brian Flores is a really good NFL coach and is going to be a really good NFL coach. And if you want to talk about if the Browns led the way on like tank, rebuild, and try to make this work, the Dolphins are like right next in line. And it seems like they're getting some stuff together there that is a little bit reminiscent of this, but they're going to wind up doing it. What I said the first time of if Brian Flores is their Hugh Jackson, it feels like Flores is with the program fighting through this. They're winning some games unexpectedly and he's going to be there long-term. But if they had hired Brian Flores, he's a defensive coach. They would have had to bring in an offensive coordinator here that Kevin Stefanski, all these things you mentioned else that he is an offensive coach with the way this team is constructed with Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham and Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. Scott, do they need their head coach to be an offensive guy? Is that part of why Kevin Stefanski feels like the exact right guy that it's not a defensive coach who's looking for an offensive coordinator. It's a top down cohesive offensive mindset for a team that has a lot of offensive talent. Um, I think this, the, the previous two seasons turned that answer into a yes. By the way, Kenny Britt is the receiver. You Kenny, Britt. Kenny Britt. Kenny Britt. <laughs> but uh, I, going, through, uh, 20, uh, going through 2018 and uh, watching all the issues, you know, watching Baker Mayfield kind of come onto the scene and, and show all this promise, that's – that's why Freddie Kitchens became the head coach, right? Because they wanted that continuity. They saw how well things worked with him and, and Baker over the final half of the season. And then you had last season where everything just fell apart and the Haslam's are sitting there thinking that we don't want to waste what it seems like we have in a quarterback in an offense in general. So yeah, I think this kind of had to be an offensive coach um, because first and foremost, you're looking around the league to try and figure out who can, take all this talent we have and make it work. And, you know, you're not, you're not thinking who should we hire as the offensive coordinator at that point. I think you're thinking who should we hire as the head coach who has coordinator experience, who's focused on offense and can make this team what we want it to be. So you, you outlined some things, Ellis, that were like leadership and that kind of thing. Leadership can come whether you're an offensive or defensive coach, but does this make much more sense for them because Kevin Stefanski is an offensive coach? Right. So they're both interconnected and, on the surface, if we again, I'm always, I always go back to Madden. If we were playing Madden and you had to pick a category for Kevin Stefanski, yes, you would pick offensive coach. But I'm here to tell you, he's a lot more than just an offensive coach. When I think of just an offensive coach, I think of a guy like Ben McAdoo. You know, the, you know, you have this big fancy play sheet, and you've got all these cool plays that work on paper, and there's four receivers running around, and it's sexy, it's cool, but it's not sustainable because you don't understand the entire game. And what I mean by that, and, and it's a cliche, but I, I really need listeners to understand that when it's actually applied, it is winning football and it's complementary football. 
remember, Kevin Stefanski was a, a college safety. He played defense in college. You know, he wasn't this this pretty boy quarterback, and he wasn't you know a split out receiver. He he knows defense first, and that's what I think makes him such a talented offensive coach. That, for example. And, you know, we can probably add this to the list, but he, he learns from himself. He learns from his mistakes versus the Cowboys. He probably went back and watched that game and realized I had my defense on the field too much. We were scoring too fast. And I, I look, coaches dial up plays with the goal of scoring, of course. But when his D line is dead tired and they, you know, a, a few drives before that scored on four plays on like four Kareem Hunt runs and four first downs. He probably realized he needed to tone it down a little bit to protect his defense because though a great defense is obviously a great defense in the NFL, a great way to have a good defense in the NFL is just to play less defense in general. Just don't have them on the field. And that's what happened against the Colts. Uh, the Browns time of possession, 34 minutes. The Colts time of possession was only 25. And the play count, the Browns ran 72 plays to only 52 plays for the Colts. You know, running 20 more plays on a team, you keep your defense off the field and thus protecting them, keeping them fresh. So, again, to wrap this up, I agree with you that Kevin Zafanski is an offensive coach, and we're seeing that with how he's using and teaching and maturing Baker Mayfield. But overall, he's a football coach. He's a leader. He's a, he's a student of the game and understands how both the offense and defense are interconnected, and that helps protect his team overall. So there's two points I want to make here because you've mentioned it two times so far about pretty boy coaches and I think maybe that are, are quarterbacks. You don't like Cliff Kingsbury. You think he is a, <laughs> a pretty boy, gunslinging quarterback guy who got fired in college and all of a sudden wound up as an NFL head coach, right? You don't like Cliff Kingsbury. So let's, let's do this real quickly because I do – it is one more segment I have coming up here. I wanted to – uh, elaborate on what I mean by Kevin Stefanski being one of the next difference makers. And this is going to be me proving that I do like Cliff Kingsbury. Oh, Yeah. So you see, I just, I think it's fascinating how different they are. I don't want to just group Kevin Stefanski in here with these young coordinators, you know, like a uh, Kyle Shanahan and say, look, they're all the same. They're all cookie cutter. They're all getting to these spots at being experts in different areas, but overall being head coaches. So I have a list here, the, the, the untouchables, if you will, of the NFL. John Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Bill Belichick, Mike Tomlin, Sean Payton, uh, Pete Carroll. All right, then we already mentioned Kyle Shanahan. You know, like Sean McVay is probably on this list, two younger guys. I'm throwing John Gruden on there because just beat the Chiefs, and you know how I feel about John Gruden, baby. That, just give me all the HBO hard knock John Gruden you can give me. All right, now, now, now here, the next list I have is the next level, the next difference makers. And you've already mentioned a few of them. Sean McDermott's on this list. Uh, probably is flirting with the, the untouchable way, but, you know, when you have Belichick and Pete Carroll, then you have Sean McVay. You're, it, it gets hard to categorize these guys. But in terms of next level difference makers, I have Kingsbury, McDermott, Matt Rule. It's going to be interesting to watch where that goes in Carolina. I think he's building something comparable in Cleveland, just a complete change of the culture. Uh, Matt LaFleur in Green Bay, and then you already mentioned Brian Flores. And now I think Kevin Stefanski is on that list. And then you have a bunch of in-betweeners, the, the, the Doug Petersons of the world, who this isn't – we don't have enough time to talk about all 32 head coaches, the Mike Zimmers, the guys who, of course, are respectable and have won, but you just don't know quite where they fit. Kevin Stefanski is in this next tier, this, this difference maker. You know, I'll, we'll call it the who got next category. You know, Kevin Stefanski's not going anywhere. He's going to be a coach in this league for a very long time, and that's – 
Again, my defense of Cliff Kingsbury, because he's now on this list with Kevin Stefanski. And overall, it's an exciting group that I think Browns fans can have a lot of comfort and calmness with because that's elite company already. It's interesting, you know, a couple years, you know, two years ago or something, Doug Peterson would have been in the, uh, a category above where you have him now. I mean, the, right. guy, the guy won a Super Bowl. He developed Carson Wentz immediately. Then Carson Wentz got hurt and he won the Super Bowl with a backup quarterback. And now Carson Wentz is kind of playing bad. And people are like, what's going on in Philly? And part of this too, and I, and, and I want to, I'm trying to write about some of this stuff this week is like, you, you know, there is like, there's Belichick. And there's almost like he's like on a, on a category almost of his own. You know, like Andy Reid is a consistent winner. Pete Carroll is a consistent winner. There are a lot. I mean, there's Niners. The Niners like rushed Jimmy G back and then benched him yeah. last week while getting torched by Miami. Like, I don't know. Kyle Shanahan looks at least slightly less of a genius than he did a year ago when he went to the Super Bowl. But this is how it works. Maybe, I, you know, is Kevin Stefanski Bill Belichick? No. So that means he's going to have a dip at some point and then he'll come back up and then he'll it's just that the Browns have been down, have been on the bottom for so long. People forget this is how it works, but like they're on a little upswing. But if Kevin Stefanski is here for a long time, they'll make the playoffs and they'll have a rough year and people will be like, what's up with that guy? Then they'll make the playoffs again. But it's like the Browns are just back in the mix of a normal NFL franchise. And it's not that Kevin Stefanski has to be Andy Reid and like make the playoffs every single year and then have, get, get a Patrick Mahomes. But also if Andy Reid didn't have Patrick Mahomes, he wouldn't be exactly looking like he is right now. One thing I wanted to make sure, there were two things I wanted to ask you about Cliff Kingsbury. And again, you mentioned the pretty boy thing a couple times. Do you, or do you not think that Kevin Stefanski is handsome? Oh, of course he's handsome. handsome. He's got that Minnesota swag to him, that, that, that salt and pepper look to him. But here's the thing. He doesn't want that attention. That's more what I mean by the pretty boy thing. Like Cliff Kingsbury puts the ultimate thirst trap up on, on the draft night showing off his you know $25 million home and Kevin Stefanski sitting there on, on a chair that looks a lot like the one you're sitting in, Doug. And that's no disrespect to the chair. It's just not one that Cliff Kingsbury is going to have poolside in, in Phoenix. You know what I mean? So that's more what I mean by the pretty boy where he could be one if he wanted to, but he, his ego doesn't need it. And that's really, again, we can put that under the leadership and why I'm glad that you mentioned that this is how these things work. He will have a low and perhaps you see those lows in next year. The Browns aren't as good on third down and maybe their red zone percentage does dip a little bit, but the things that won't change are his understanding of the opponent. This team will always be disciplined. He'll have clock management and he'll have leadership. And then when he keeps reinventing himself year to year, those red zone touchdowns, the third downs, those take care of itself. And that's what I mean by being a complete head coach. Those intangibles that Stefanski has, they're not going away. So, so wait a minute. So the, the Browns' two previous coaches were quarterbacks. Were they not pretty boys too? Or were they, were they just quarterbacks? <laughs> Here, let me ask you, Scott. Do you think Freddie Kitchens is a handsome man? <laughs> I'm just, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't describe either of them as pretty boy quarterbacks. They were former quarterbacks. Right, right. And again, I think that's important to, uh, to keep in mind that I think Kevin Stefanski's background, being a defensive guy, his complete understanding of the game, you just don't need to find the next quarterback offensive you know, boy wonder. It's about being an overall comprehensive football coach. And again, that's what the Browns have found in Kevin Stefanski. This is a little more of a specific thing, but it was a big topic before the season. And I just I want to check where you guys were on this before the season and how you think it's working out so far. 
the decision of whether Kevin Stefanski was going to call his own plays or whether Alex Van Pelt would do it. Scott, where, what did you think should happen? And what do you think of how things have gone through the first five games with Stefanski calling the plays? It seemed obvious to me that Stefanski should call his own plays because of the fact that he was bringing pretty much the offense that he ran in Minnesota here. Plus the fact that it was such a weird off season, everything was done virtually for so long. Maybe it would have been different if, if him and Van Pelt were in, you know, in the building throughout the off season and, and doing things, I don't know, being in person and actually seeing guys do things on the field and, and how that all looked in practice instead of virtually for so long. But it seemed to make sense to me that Stefanski should be the guy. And so far, yeah, I mean, he's looked great. And um, the reason this team is four and one is clearly because of the offense and not so much because of the defense. So what he's doing is working. Ellis, where were you on that? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question, Doug, because I'll say this. Maybe it's a story Cleveland.com can get to someday. I'm very confident that if the Ohio teams, being the Bengals and the Browns, were, say, the Cowboys and the Giants, a national reporter would have already figured out why Van Pelt left Joe Burrow for Baker Mayfield and wasn't calling plays in Cincinnati and then wasn't calling plays in Cleveland either. Point being, I thought that's the reason Van Pelt came to Cleveland. I thought the promotion, if you will, would be from being having the same title in both spots, but then gaining play calling duties in Cleveland. I'm not sure if that was the original plan and the pandemic changed everything or if there was never a shot of that, but you weren't going to get play calling duties from Zach Taylor. That's why he got the job. You know, he's a, he's a uh, buddies with Sean McVay and that was his, you know, claim to fame early. And I think the Bengals are in all right hands, even though I'd take Stefanski over Taylor. Now that uh, Stefanski is the play caller in Cleveland, there's, I don't see him ever relinquishing that title. I mean, never say never, I suppose, but it's just, I thought it would be Van Pelt for, again, the reason he came over to Cleveland and then just Stefanski not taking on as much as a first-year head coach. I thought he would have a lot more to deal with. And quite frankly, clearly he is dealing with all those things and he can handle this extra workload. So it is just through five games, it is so impressive to see him take that on and, and just not miss a beat. And we talked, it seemed like a lot last season, right? That maybe Freddie Kitchens would have a script for the first drive and it would look good. And then like after that, it wouldn't look the same. They have a cohesive way they want to go about their business as you analyze and break down the film Ellis it's feeling like I mean I know it's not scripted the whole game but it's feeling like the plan is there from the first snap to the last snap that it doesn't and that's what you're talking about red zone third down late clock management kind of stuff that he's able to to execute all that stuff even without the first 10 play script Right, because last year it really felt like Freddie Kitchens was just calling plays. I think of the end of the Rams game often now when I'm comparing Stefanski, just not even Stefanski to Kitchens, just why this Browns team looks different. And if fans remember, they just were really running slants. You know, my guy's going to beat your guy, and it's going to be for the game. This year, Kevin Stefanski completely understands his opponent. Uh, let's just take the Colts, for example. Uh, the Colts were best in the league on third downs, only giving up 31% of third downs. And that's a, had a lot to do with teams not being disciplined enough on first and second down to get into third and manageable teams were, you know, they were having a lot of success, of course, on third down because teams were having third and seven between third and 12 and whatnot. So instead of dialing up passes for Baker Mayfield on first and second down, which they did in the first half, they just did so in an effective, efficient way, play action, easy out completions, taking advantage of the zone coverage. Cleveland's average distance to go on second down was eight yards. And then they averaged four yards per play on that second down. 
They scored a touchdown to Richard Higgins. They completed passes to Jarvis Landry, uh, four passes, Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham combined. And again, Higgins second down touchdowns, an example of that. So Kevin Stefanski understands his opponent and is able to stay disciplined throughout his game plan rather than having, like you said, Doug, having those first few skipped plays and remaining disciplined then, but then when there's eight minutes to go in the second quarter and your script's thrown out the window, you still are true to your, what you wrote on the whiteboard on Wednesday during your offensive philosophies for this week. It, it's a testament to his discipline. And then it shows in the clock management situations, third down and red zone. All right. So we officially established that Ellis does like Cliff Kingsbury and he does think Kevin Stefanski is handsome. And I think there was some other good stuff in there too, but we really had to drill down on that. Uh, really good breakdown so far today on Olivier Vernon and Kevin Stefanski. We usually each have a little topic that we end with at the end. I actually would like to get your opinions on a very specific topic because it was something that was a big deal last week. And I didn't tell you guys ahead of time, but I'll spring it on you after the break as we finish up here on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, we're back on Gotta Watch the Tape. We could have cheated. I could have told them the topic like in between and then cut that out and said like, hey guys, here's what I'm gonna ask about. So you can sound, but I didn't. They wasted like, we paused for like two seconds. So here's the thing. Ellis, you were very big on this last week of not overusing Kareem Hunt with the Nick Chubb injury. How will Ernest Johnson work in? So I'll start with you, Ellis, because you were the king of, what was it? Don't overuse Kareem Hunt Island. Yep. Protect How, Kareem Island, but same thing. Protect, <laughs> that's a better name. Yeah, that's, mine was a little clunky. What did you think of the way Kareem Hunt was used against the Colts? And how would you advise, this is going to be a tough one against Pittsburgh. How would you advise the Browns to use Kareem Hunt this coming Sunday? Yeah, it's a great question. So 20 carries for Kareem Hunt, uh, 72 yards, 3.6 average, and then also four catches. And those go for, or sorry, four targets, three catches, 21 yards. So 23 overall touches, 24 looks. Uh, It's right flirting with the danger zone for me. I just, this offense completely changes without Kareem Hunt on the field. And I did mention this last week though, schedule has a lot to do with this. I could see Kevin Stefanski wanting to get through these two tough defenses in first the Colts and then Pittsburgh with running Kareem Hunt hard. And then you can ease them up as the Raiders and the the Texans and and whatnot start showing up on this schedule. Um, So again, it, it, it is, it's, it's a little cringeworthy, but I understand that due to the quality of opponent, you need to bring and put your best players and put them around the football and on the ball. So I understand the game plan. And ultimately I'll end with this. It's a testament to Kareem Hunt's toughness. I mean, LeBron James tweeted about it two weeks ago. This guy is just tough as nails. And if his body can hold up, then, then he can handle the workload because it'd be one thing if he showed a lack of production with the injury, he looks like Kareem Hunt. And so far, he is able to finish games, unlike the, the, the snap count it looked like they had him on in, in Dallas. So if he's trending towards being healthier, and instead of being worn down, then keep it going. It's, it's extremely impressive what Kareem Hunt's doing. So, Scott, I want your take on Kareem Hunt, but I also, Scott, want your take on Dearness Johnson, who had the big 28-yard carry to put it away against Indianapolis, but his seven other carries that day went for a combined four yards. So, Scott the balance of Hunt and Johnson and the effectiveness there. Yeah, Kareem Hunt played 70% of the snaps, and uh, that's a big increase over the first uh, few weeks. So what Ellis talked about obviously kind of came true there. He, they kind of had to use him more, and, and you're right. Dernis Johnson was not the same guy we saw the previous week. Uh, I think, and I think it was last week you said you felt like the Browns missed – I might have been after the game, you felt the Browns missed Nick Chubb. I think where they missed him was 
they didn't have that other guy to give a significant amount of snaps to who could have tried to have the success that, that Kareem Hunt wasn't having in the first half. You know, usually it's Nick Chubb out there first, and then Kareem Hunt will kind of come in. Now it was Kareem Hunt, and there was really they, – they didn't have that other guy. They, they decided that Kareem Hunt was going to get uh, an increase in snaps, and Dernis Johnson wasn't going to really take over that, that second role maybe as much as he did uh, against the Cowboys. You know, going forward, I think it might depend on whether or not Kareem Hunt shows up on the injury report this week is, you know, limited or, or whatever the case is. Uh, if he's totally beyond the groin issue, then, then you know, I, I think probably 70% of the snaps is what you're going to see going forward. So it's one of those things. They scored on every drive in the first half. They only had four drives, but they didn't punt in the first half. So it was like, oh, well, they couldn't run the ball. It didn't, it didn't matter. They did what they needed to do. They moved the ball and they put points on the board. So, again – my criticism is not going to be, well, the Browns, how come your third string tailback isn't better? Because nobody has a good third string tailback. But I do think that Dearness Johnson is like, is not that guy. I don't think that you can rely on him in any kind of load share against a decent defense to come in and be productive on any kind of regular basis. So then you have to adjust from that. And the adjustment is either more Kareem Hunt. The adjustment is, as we saw in the first half, you pass the ball effectively, your, you know, Baker plays pretty well. Your receivers are making great catches to help bail them out. Kevin Stefanski calls a really good game. So it's not, it's not like panic mode, but I did think anybody, I think if you thought they'll be fine, that like if they, if they had a two-headed thing with Chubb and Hunt, they'll be fine with the two-headed thing of Hunt and Johnson. I didn't think that, and I didn't think we saw that. So they can adjust to that, but I think they have to adjust to that. They can't just do what they did the first couple of weeks when they had both top tailbacks healthy. I think it's worth remembering that this past week and this coming week, they're going to face two of the best run defenses they're going to face all year. So I don't know if these are the two games where you really judge Ernest Johnson. Clearly we all know he's not the same level as Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb, but you know, he, he could look a lot different in, in some upcoming weeks that aren't against the Steelers and the Colts. Um, yeah. The, you know, he the, might the, get more opportunities in those. Right. They got the Bengals after this. So Kareem Hunt, again, that injury report's huge. If he's trending towards healthy, then I'm with Doug, you know, it's going to be another 20 carries for Kareem Hunt to beat a team like the Steelers, but then perhaps you see him lessening his workload as you get to the Bengals and the Raiders and so on. And I'll be very curious, and maybe this will be a topic that we'll get into in our second Got to Watch the Tape later this week, just how the Steelers decide to come out and defend the Browns because the Colts did feel like they were maybe trying to stop the run early and doing so effectively, but then they were leaving some opportunities there for Baker. As good as Kareem Hunt is, I think with the way the Browns are working right now, if I were the Steelers, I'd give up a little bit of the run and make sure you're making, you're trying to make Baker make tough throws in tight windows. And like, that's how I would try to defend this Browns offense. Although I, I don't know how you do that. I'm not a, I'm not a tape guy. That's what you guys figure out. So fascinating matchup ahead. I mean, huge, awesome, fun game. This is a really good Browns team. And I, and if ever people listen to this and think like, well, how come they're four and one and, you know, we weren't just jumping around and talking about all the things they're doing great. They're doing a lot. They're doing a lot of great things, but they also, this is what happens when you're good. You talk about how can you be even better? Well, if Olivier Vernon does a little more of this, it could be even better. If they maybe, you know, Kevin Stefanski had been hired a couple of years ago, maybe, but they're really good. There's a lot of, I think this is a really fun team to talk about. And again, there's just some guys I would, we're going to get into Jedrick Wills at some point. We're going to get into Jack Conklin at some point. We're going to get into Sheldon Richardson at some point. You know, there's just a lot of like still really 
interesting people on this roster that deserve deep dives because this is a really interesting team. So thanks to everybody who listens to this. Um, make sure that you are subscribed to the Orange and Brown Talk feed so you get all of our Orange and Brown Talk podcasts five days a week and then got to watch the tape Tuesdays and Fridays. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash Browns for all the great work that Scott and Ellis and everybody else in our Browns coverage team, they're putting that stuff up there every day of the week. So for now, thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. For Ellis and Scott, I'm Doug. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.